This is Medieval Death Trip for Friday, August 5th, 2016, episode 28, concerning the terrible crimes of Philip de Bella Abore. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the podcast where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane. This episode, we're going back to our roots in a way. Uh, First, by revisiting The Life and Miracles of St. William of Norwich by Thomas of Monmouth, and second, by trying to be a little more streamlined. Uh, We've had a little bit of commentary creep, uh, or bloat, or let's say grotesque swelling in dire need of a miracle cure. Um, You know, I think it's fine to dig in deep, or indeed to range broadly as the case may be, but I want to try to keep that somewhat more of an occasional indulgence rather than making it the norm for every episode. In that spirit, we have a neat little self-contained story today. It comes from a less than neat and tidy source, uh, The Life and Miracles of St. William of Norwich, uh, which was written in the 1170s by the sacrist of Norwich, Thomas of Monmouth. Um, I laid out some of the main reasons why this text is problematic, um, namely its deep anti-Semitism, way back in episode 11, how a blood libel takes root, Um, and rather than rehashing all of that here, I'll just direct new listeners to that show in our archives. Um, It's still on the feed in iTunes, or you can listen directly at our website, MedievalDeathTrip.com. We haven't been back to Norwich since that episode, um, but we have by no means exhausted the Death Trip material Thomas serves up in his book. He's especially good for vividly presenting specific local anecdotes, uh, things that aren't recorded in any other authors. It's kind of refreshing to return to Thomas after our recent run of royal histories where any given anecdote is told in four or five versions by different authors, half of which are paraphrases of other sources. Here we have a story that is all its own. Um, Now, it doesn't actually begin locally in Norwich, But the Shrine of William is where it reaches its climactic conclusion. So unlike episode 11's story of the discovery of William's body, which is local reporting from start to finish, today's tale is more like the one that featured in our very first episode uh, about Weimark and her toad-induced swelling, uh, where most of the story involves things that are remote in both time and place from where and when Thomas is writing, but which all serve to put the character on the path towards... Uh, an ultimate miracle at the shrine that is in Thomas's care. Such is the fate of the main character in today's story, a knight of the Duchy of Lorraine called Philip de Bella Arbora. His story is presented as part of the long catalog of posthumous miracles that make up well over half of the life and miracles of St. William of Norwich, a book which, as I suppose befits a child saint, uh, is rather short on life and long on miracles. Really, a more accurate title would be The Death and Miracles of William of Norwich, since that's what Thomas focuses on. But though it would no doubt pain Thomas to hear me say it, the details of William's life don't matter at all for today's story. Um, He's basically little more than a kind of featureless power outlet for divine will to flow out of, uh, as is the fate of many saints who suffer a kind of personality erosion after their sainthood, as we talked about a bit in one of our Simon de Montfort episodes. But enough looking backwards, let's press forward and get into our text. I don't think it needs any particular context notes or prefatory explanations, so here it is, as translated by Augustus Jessup and M.R. James 
in their 1896 edition of The Life and Miracles of St. William of Norwich, with just a few small phrasing adjustments of my own. Every day, the fame and wonder of the holy martyr continued to grow, and many came thronging to him, even from remote districts. The bound were loosed, the sick healed, and those who had come in sorrow went away in joy. Christ was indeed increasing by wonderful signs the grace he had conferred on his Holy One, and as greater wonders succeeded those already great, and marvel followed upon marvel, it was only reasonable that the praise of the blessed martyr should grow and his fame should spread abroad. Were I to relate everything as it happened, my book would be so long as to engender disgust. So I merely sketch out in simple language for the pious reader such things as I judge best worth the telling or most widely known, such too as will neither injure the soul of him who peruses them, nor cause devotion to wax cool. I think it then worthwhile to attract the loving devotion of the reader, to kindle it when attracted, to fan it when kindled, by setting forth the truly marvelous case of Philip de Bella Abore. He was a native of Lorraine, noble by birth, a soldier by calling, distinguished in worldly rank. He was entitled to a large territory and many castles by the law of inheritance, but a brother who was his enemy and rebelled against him had, partly by fraud and partly by violence and rapine, diminished his rightful possessions by a large portion. In consequence, hatred crept into the brothers' minds, and slowly germinating, drove out thence brotherly affection, and it grew to such a pitch that what each most thirsted after was the other's blood, and his only hope of safety lay in the other's death. And, as the peril and safety of each was tossed in fortune's game, it happened one day that Philip, when journeying with his retinue, unexpectedly fell in with his brother, who was almost alone. The latter, in panic, turned his horse's head and pinned his hopes on swift flight. On his course he came to a church hard by, occupied by canons who lived and served God there as religious. Trembling with fear, he entered it with his men, as his only refuge, and the doors were locked. Philip, in hot pursuit, shortly came up, found the doors shut, and furiously demanded that his foe should be given up to him. Threats and prayers were found alike unavailing. So at last, in his rage, he set fire to the place, in order that the fear of that might extort what his threatenings could not. The fire was kindled, there was a strong wind blowing, and, horrible to relate, the church, the adjoining buildings, the inmates, nay, everything in them, was consumed, and the sight reduced to a waste. Little cared the victor for his crime. He merely exulted over the destruction of his enemy. A deed so atrocious could not, however, long remain concealed. Indeed, at the time of its commission, the report of it was spread everywhere, and came to the ears of the Archbishop of Treves, to whose diocese Philip belonged. Summoned by this prelate to answer for the offense once, twice, and thrice, he remained from first to last insolent and contumacious, and was finally visited, as the strict law of Christianity enjoins, with the sentence of excommunication and all his lands laid under the ban of the church as its law directs. Yet, in the heat of youth, uncurbed and unrestrained, he made light of all, feared neither God nor man, and like a madman persevered for a space of two years in the evil course he had begun. During all this time, 
wearied by the frequent warnings of his men and at last persuaded, the ferocious lawbreaker returned to his senses. And since blind wrath sees no path, as long as he was blinded with his wrath, he had never appreciated the gravity of his crime. But on returning to himself, he lamented it with horror. Humbled at length and prostrate with terror, he flung himself at the feet of the archbishop, begged forgiveness, and obtained it. The archbishop sent him and his companions in crime to the then pope, Eugenius, with a letter setting forth the manner of the crime, and the pope sent them back whence they came with a decree of penance. To be short, Philip was clothed in a shirt of mail on his bare flesh, girt with his own sword, his arms ringed with iron, and a ten years' sentence of exile and wandering enjoined upon him, as well as the reparation of the holy place he had destroyed. Those who had shared in the awful deed shared also in the punishment. Condemned to a like wearing of irons, they all went forth from their lands and their kindred and wandered abroad for the period prescribed. After traversing many lands in a period of seven years, God's mercy looked upon Philip, and at Jerusalem, before the sepulchre of the Lord, the mail of his shirt burst asunder and freed him from the greater part of his penance. In like manner in Ireland, at St. Brendan's shrine at Clonfert, by God's grace the sword wherewith he was girded broke in sunder. But in England, at Norwich, at the tomb of the most blessed martyr William, the iron ring on his right arm was broken. For when, after long wanderings, he had traversed most parts of England seeking the prayers of the saints and their shrines and worshipping there, drawn by God's grace, as we believe, he came to Norwich, to the tomb already famous of the excellent martyr William. Here, as he was praying with great devotion, the iron of his right arm suddenly snapped in our sight, startling the ears of the bystanders with its sound, in which the true working through the martyr of the power of the divine pity was plainly shown to us. At the glorious sight, the holy convent of monks assembled and, proclaiming God to be wonderful in his holy martyr, gave him due praises and thanks. I certainly do not think that credence can be given to those who attribute occurrences of this kind to the cunning of impostors. For whatever evil-disposed mountebanks may do for the sake of vittles, we, at any rate, can boldly testify to what we have seen with our eyes. Yet more, there is sound evidence to justify belief. For there was then at Norwich a merchant of Cologne who had brought wine over in a ship from that part of the world. This man on seeing Philip recognized him, having seen him before in the province of Treves, and told us what he had afterwards heard about him. It is plain then that what we have recorded about him is quite true, and that detractors are not, in this case, to be believed. So there we have the tale of the fall and redemption of the brother-slayer and fatal church arsonist Philip de Bella Abore. That's a nice, clear, proper name, so I thought I'd see what else I could find out about this person. Now, my admittedly cursory research indicates that this person is known only from Thomas's account, which doesn't appear to have stopped a number of modern authors from assuming the truth of his existence. He's cited as one example of how penitence might be manifested among the knightly classes, and also as a data point for pilgrim travel, and just generally accepted as a real pilgrim to Norwich. Now, is it unreasonable to assume that there really was a fratricidal knight of Lorraine named Philip de Bella Abore? Well, as I see it, that depends on a couple of things. First, and most obviously, 
It depends on whether or not there's any confirmation of his existence in other sources. Is he named in a continental genealogical source, or in a charter or legal document? Is there a surviving letter or decree of Pope Eugene III detailing Philip's prescribed penance? As I said, I couldn't find anything, uh, though to be honest, I'm not sure I was necessarily looking in all the right places or using all of the appropriate variations in spelling and designation that might be necessary. Um, but let's take that to be the case, that his name does not appear in any other surviving 12th century documentation. How much of a red flag is that? Well, again, I do have to hedge a little bit and say that the Franco-German feudal documentary record is not something I've worked with, well, at all, really. Um, but, that said, my rough sense is that late 12th century is when I'd start to expect to see a somewhat more continuous and reliable paper trail for even minor manorial families. Uh, this isn't the 8th century, where we can have archbishops that we aren't even sure who they are or where they came from. Um, but we're still not quite in the full flourish of the central royal bureaucracies, so on balance, uh, we're still within a period where absence of evidence is not, as they say, evidence of absence. So there's no outside confirmation. But that in itself is merely inconclusive. If we had that confirmation, we could probably call the question affirmatively settled, but not having it in no way forces us to a negative conclusion. That leaves us with our second consideration, which is whether or not we trust Thomas as an honest and accurate witness. <laughs> uh, if you've listened to our other Life and Miracles of St. William of Norwich episodes, then perhaps you can anticipate uh, my feelings on this subject. Uh, no, I think we ought to be highly skeptical of the historical accuracy of Thomas's reporting. The one factor that leads Thomas some credibility in a story like this is that it is from living memory, and that many of the audience for his book would presumably have also witnessed this particular event. But to me, all that really suggests is that Thomas couldn't have fabricated the scene at the shrine from Whole Cloth. But I would say that, at best, that means that all we can say is that someone who presented himself as Philip de Abore, Knight of Lorraine, showed up with an iron band around his arm at the shrine. And furthermore, the fact that Thomas feels obligated to defend this miracle against detractors indicates that among contemporary witnesses, not everyone believed this alleged knight's story of penance. Now, in fairness to the scholars who appear to have taken this Philip story at face value, uh, he's not a linchpin in anybody's argument. Um, he's usually just offered as an additional example of something. Uh, so I'm not saying this is an egregious scholarly blunder. And frankly, if we put brackets around every character in historical documentation whose real identity or existence we can't empirically prove, uh, we'd be stuck throwing out huge swathes of historical analysis. That said, though, I do think that we in the humanities need to sound that skeptical note from time to time and not get complacent in our assumptions, uh, especially when a main reason for making those assumptions or building on the assumptions of others really is just to make it easier to write a new paper. But setting aside the moot question of Philip's existence, moot in both of its senses, uh, that is subject to continuing argument and debate, uh, and also being ultimately insignificant, uh, another interestingly unanswerable question pops up at me from this narrative, uh, and that is the nature of Philip's terrible crime. Thomas leaves it ambiguous, I think, or, or perhaps he just assumes the hierarchy of criminal offense will be obvious to his audience. Granted that both are crimes, and that Philip's penance undoubtedly covers both, I still have to wonder which would have been considered more egregious, 
Philip's commission of fratricide or his burning down of a church and its inhabitants, simultaneously violating the tradition of sanctuary and committing a profound kind of desecration of a holy place. How much does it matter that he appears to have been quite deliberately intent on killing his brother, but seems to have not meant to burn the whole church down and kill everyone in it? He just wanted to intimidate them, or maybe smoke them out, but the blaze grew out of control. And is the viciousness of the fratricide in any way mitigated by the fact that, as Thomas relates it anyway, Philip's brother was rebelling against Philip's lawful right and is portrayed as being just as keen to murder Philip? After all, it's only a turn of fortune that puts the two together when Philip has the clear advantage. Because of Cain and Abel, fratricide tends to loom large as a heinous crime in the medieval mind, um, though perhaps no larger than it still does today, even though I suppose the Cain and Abel story doesn't inform modern feelings so much as the underlying factor that gives the Cain and Abel story its power, you know, the deep-seated taboo against violation of family bonds, especially in the immediate family. My own sense, uh, supported by little more than intuition, is that Thomas and his audience might have done some conventional hand-wringing over the crime of fratricide, but the thing that made Philip's story truly shocking to them was the burning down of the church, intentional or not, and the subsequent prideful and unrepentant response, which more or less erases whatever mitigating effect the accidental nature of the event might have had. You might notice that Philip's penance includes reparations to the church, uh, but no similar provisions cover his brother's lands or family. Though, to be fair, we don't know that the brother had a wife or children or even any land holdings of his own, so maybe that explains their absence. I also wonder if Thomas points out the mutuality of the brothers' hatred for each other and layers on a heavy coat of villainy on the other brothers' fraudulent and violent seizure of Philip's land and emphasizes that the burning down of the whole church was an accident, uh, he does all this in order to take some of the edge off of the terribleness of Philip's crimes so that God's apparent forgiveness of them a few years ahead of the Pope's sentence might sit a little better with his audience. He never presents the sentence as too harsh or incommensurate with the crime, but by introducing a slight dissonance between the terrible outcome of the crime and the less terrible intentions that produced it, he creates a space for miraculous forgiveness to not seem too far out of step with human expectations of justice. Or maybe the person who called himself Philip de Bella Abore is the source of this particular spin on events. Such apologetics also accord with the psychology of someone who is trying to show penitence and take responsibility, but who fundamentally cannot see themselves as the villain. And that kind of sets us up for the answer to last episode's riddle. The riddle was, Tell me, what is that which pleaseth one man and displeaseth another? This question is taken from the fragmentary Old English prose dialogue of Solomon and Saturn. And in Old English, the question posed by Saturn to Solomon is, Say ame, what is that Othram Lycia and Othram Mislycia? And Solomon's answer is, Ich the sege, that is dom. Which is to say, I tell thee, that is judgment. And that's judgment as in to pass judgment upon something, or a verdict, or, as we hear in the Old English, dom or doom in its medieval sense, doomsday, judgment day, etc., etc. Uh, so not judgment as a kind of subjectivity or discernment, you know, not as a personal trait, but as a decision that has some force behind it. This is a riddle, a riddle bordering on a proverb, 
that cuts to a deep truth, which is that as much as we might believe in justice and intellectually comprehend a just outcome or verdict, the emotional reality is that all too often justice is only felt by the winners. The winner feels justified, and the loser feels victimized. And it seems to me those feelings, more than reason or intellect, shape our perception of justice and belief in it. If you want examples, just look at how quickly some loudly touted intellectual principles of what is just have been abandoned in the wake of undesirable outcomes in the current American campaign cycle. Uh, Different factions in both parties have, at their own different times, cried out against the injustice and undemocratic qualities of various convention rules or primary mechanisms or delegate arrangements, or I'm sure as we move forward, basic election considerations. Um, They've complained about all these things only to suddenly embrace the very thing that they were making cogent arguments against the moment that it became a potential tool for their own victory, at which point it gets recast as a vital tool to fight against the unjustly rigged system. And this is perennial, and not just a product of this highly emotional election. Uh, There's good reasons why this axiom had currency in the medieval world, too. And while we're in a political vein, our new medieval mystery word relates to the use and abuse of the law. That word is... Fokorach. I'll leave you to figure out the spelling of that one on your own, uh, though I should confess that I'm only at about 75% confidence level on my pronunciation. But that word again, Fokharach. My various summer travels have delayed the recording of this episode, but we really should be back in two weeks with our next episode and the meaning of our mystery word. You can find references and other information for today's text and for all of our episodes at our website, MedievalDeathTrip.com. You can also leave comments there, or you can tweet at me at MDTPodcast on Twitter. And if you're not on Twitter or have more thoughts than you can or care to express in 140 character increments, you can always email me at Patrick at MedievalDeathTrip.com. That's going to do it for this episode. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>